Hey, this is Thinking and Drinking. I'm your host, Bart Almond. Over the last 30 years or so, I've worked for major record companies, working with major artists such as Alabama, the Dixie Chicks, and Florida Georgia Line. I've also been writing songs for the past 15 years, have over 50 cuts, two number ones, and made a lot of friends along the way. I'm going to be talking to some of those friends about songs, life on the road, and just life in general. I hope you have as much fun as I will. We have had on this show guitar players, singers, bass players, drummers, lawyers, publishers, managers, my wife, and so on. Today we have something we've never had on the show before, a professional strongman. Dave Whitley does feats of strength, not tricks, and he'll tell us what the difference is. He also wants to help us find our inner superhuman powers, and he'll explain that. Dave's an amazingly interesting guy who, by the way, loves Pantera and metal as much as I do, and he explains that. I had a blast with Dave and can't wait to be able to hang out with him again. Here's Dave Whitley. All right, thinking and drinking, Dave Whitley, strong man with a strong message. Dude, welcome to the show. How are you? Doing fantastic. Thanks for having me on, man. Dude, where are you? I am in College Grove, Tennessee, just south of Nashville, which is not too far from where you are, I understand. Absolutely, man. We're out in the, in Leaper's Fork. And it's all good. Is that the uh, the Iron Tamer bunker right there I'm looking at? Oh. Yep. I lost you. Yeah. Are you back? I'm back. Can you hear me? Yeah, a little here and there. <laughs> All right. Let's see what happens if I stop video. Yeah, shut it off. Is that any better? Um, you're coming through pretty uh, okay. Pretty yeah. well. So are you, man? No, I was asking. Is that okay, the uh, the Iron Tamer bunker I was looking at there? Oh, behind me, yeah, this is my little basement office, my bookshelf with all my Spider-Man comic books and <laughs> got a guitar and amps and stuff sitting around here and various, like, stacks upon stacks of decks of cards that have been ripped up and just <laughs> thrown into boxes and trash cans and stuff. I bet. I bet. Well, man, where were you born? I was born in Nashville. Oh, okay. Yeah, in 1969. Nice. So, um, if... Uh, and and I I joke with people when I meet them around town that I, that I'm one of the unicorns because I I live here too I was born here and I live here so yeah no um, doubt you don't find a lot of that well you said um, on your website which is irontamer.com which is a great website you said you were a chubby kid with a stutter which must uh -huh. have just been awesome for self confidence and getting the girls. Like we, we need those kind of problems. <clears throat> and you said you got into fantasy and comics and dreaming about superhuman strength. Like who were your comic book heroes? Oh, um, at the top of the list was always the Hulk. Cause you know, he was huge and strong and indestructible. And I identified him with him as a kid, uh, 
because all of his power was kind of fueled by that anger, you know, and I was, I was a pretty angry kid when I was eight or nine years old, that kind of thing. But I think, I think a lot, a lot of kids are, you know, I I don't want to sound like I was miserable or anything like that, but I identify with that because I would, I would get picked on for stuttering and for being overweight and all that kind of stuff. So, Mm -hmm. uh, very strong identified with the Hulk really love Spider-Man. Um, which, uh, we're recording this the week before Halloween and on Halloween, my three-year-old is dressing as Spider-Man and I am dressing as the Hulk when we go out. So um, it's all played out pretty well, you know? And uh, so yeah, it was Spider-Man, the Hulk. um, I liked Superman, Batman, the, you know, the, the, the big name ones and all that. But then, then I started getting into some of the more obscure stuff too, you know, Fantastic Four and, and it just, that kind of stuff, you know, late seventies, early eighties, comic book stuff, fun stuff. So the Hulk was kind of interesting because, um, I don't know about you, but I kind of had some anger issues when I was growing up as well. And, um, well, I mean, I didn't know about you, you just said that, but trying to control that anger was, was a big part of my life. And once in a while it, it still is. So that, that's interesting that we look back on our childhood heroes like that to try to kind of figure out our own psyche sometimes. Well, and, and at this point now that I'm not an angry guy anymore and I am a, you know, I'm, I'm a professional strong man. So I'm, I'm stronger than the average person. Yeah. Um, it's interesting to me to look back and realize that I really liked the comic book Hulk, but it really clicked for me with the television series, which had a, a different origin for the Hulk and kind of a different um, take oh, on yeah. the character. And if you remember in the pilot episode, the reason that Bill Bixby got overdosed on the radiation in the first place is because he had lost his wife in a car crash. Mm-hmm. He wasn't able to save her. And he had amassed all these stories of people who were able to just kind of pull out this superhuman strength in a, in a time of dire emergency. And he was unable to do that. So he was trying to fix that problem that he perceived within himself and yeah. wound up creating a monster, you know? And so now all this time later, when I'm, when I'm looking back on that, I'm like, that's really the impact that the, that the show had on me yeah. um, along with seeing, seeing Lou Ferrigno and realizing that a human being could be big and strong, but the, the mental impact that that show had on me was that um, I really wanted to know what it was about the human condition and the potential of the human condition that could be made into um a, a truly superhuman state. And I define superhuman um, very clearly so that we're not talking about shooting lasers out of your eyes or flying or anything like that. When I'm talking yeah. about being superhuman, I'm, I'm going back to the literal translations of superhuman power. I mean, I don't have to, to define human for you. That's the experience that we're having, but let's get clear definitions on super. The Latin root of that is over above and beyond or exhibiting the characteristics of its type to an extreme or excessive degree. And so when I, want to do superhuman feats of strength, like ripping decks of cards, that's an extreme or excessive display of that. Right. Right. And then the other word in there, superhuman power, um, power comes from the Latin root of potera, which is also the root of the word, modern word potential. So our power and our potential are rooted in the same place. And even in the language that we use, and that word means to be able So the literal definition that I use Mm -hmm. for superhuman power is take whatever you as a human are able to do naturally and elevate it to um, an extreme or excessive degree 
with the purpose of living a full and happy life, fully expressing who you are and making the world a better place. So, you know, if we if we look at it through that lens, um, we can see people like um, mutual admirations that you and I have of somebody like Dimebag Daryl or Eddie Van Halen. Those yeah. guys were superhuman because they took that thing and they amplified it to this extreme level and made a whole lot of people happy with it, including themselves. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. How did you I mean. I don't even know how to ask this, but was there anybody in your family or neighborhood that was that had the idea of bending wrenches or ripping phone books and decks of cards? Or how did you how did you get to that place? <laughs> well, my dad, who passed away last year, oh, um, man. was he he um, he was a part time musician. And when he wasn't on the road and music. He would do like construction work, hanging wallpaper. He was a carpenter at okay. one point in his life, all that kind of stuff. So like the very, the very first legitimate feat of strength that I ever remember seeing anybody do was him um, doing a sledgehammer lever where he, he swings the sledgehammer up and his arms parallel to the ground. He's holding it at the end of the hand, brings this hammer down and touches his nose or his forehead and takes it back up. Right. And if you've ever tried to do that feat, a 12 pound, a 12 pound weight doesn't sound very heavy until you put it on the end of a, of a 30 inch long stick. And then, um, you wind up with almost 400 pounds of inch or 400 inch pounds of torque on the wrist to do that. So seeing him do that kind of planted the seed really early on, then seeing, um, Ferrigno on TV as the Hulk and then seeing Ferrigno and Arnold and all of those guys in pumping iron, not too long after I saw the Hulk. That was awesome. Um, yeah, right after that was when I got a set of weights and started, you know, doing that um, as best I could based on the Lou Ferrigno book that I bought. Um, it wasn't until about 2006 or 2007 that I had ever seen anybody bend a wrench. And my mentor, Dennis Rogers, um, I saw him bend one on DVD and um, was just blown away by it because he's not a, he's not a big guy. He's like five, eight and about 165 pounds. Damn. And and, um, I, at that point in time, I had a, um, this predates podcast, but I had a, uh, uh, an online, like a website based business where I would do these recordings with people and then mail out physical CDs Okay. of, of the, you know, so it, it predates a podcast, you know, technology yeah. fixed all that. Um, but I was doing it the, the old fashioned way where you're burning CDs and sending them out as like a subscription um, service thing like that. And a mutual friend of mine named Bud Jeffries recommended that I talk to Dennis about being on the show. Cause it was all about strength and stuff. And so Dennis, uh, I made contact with him. He sent me a bunch of DVDs of him doing shows, performing, and also teaching some feats. And I saw him bend this wrench and I'm just like, it wouldn't compute in my mind. And so I called yeah. him up and I'm like, I have to learn how to do this. It, and you know, this is what I I've been looking for because lifting weights was great. Uh, and I enjoy being strong. I, I don't have the genetic, uh, proclivity to be a professional bodybuilder. And also I like to eat and drink beer too much. So, um, seeing a performing strong man do what he does really kind of, I'm like, Oh, this is what I've been looking for. And I didn't even know that I was looking for it. Yeah. And so that was in about 2007 or so. And I started training with him and that opened up everything for what I'm doing um, professionally right now. 
um, getting on stages and doing feats of strength and talking about the power of the mind that goes along with that. Because there was yeah. this one particular incident, this, uh, this um, feat that he did where you take a, a small nail, like a 16 or 20 penny nail, which is like two and a half, three inches long, small nail, okay. and you wrap it up in a washcloth and you drive it through a board. Um, holding it in your hand. So you drive a nail without a hammer. And I'm like, that's a really cool feat. But the first time that I ever remember seeing it done was a video um, that's not available to the public that he showed me where there was a, the short version of the story is there was a major equipment malfunction and he wound up with the nail stuck in his hand rather than going through the just happened to be shooting video that night okay. and he captured that and captured the subsequent trip to the emergency room and extraction of said nail from his hand and so i could feel myself when i was attempting to do this feat unconsciously putting the brakes on because there was some fear there right. i knew intellectually and consciously that all safety precautions were in place and i knew what i was doing and the guy that taught me how to do it had done it thousands of times and this was just a freak accident that happened to him but there was an element of fear that came up and so i'd gone to texas and was training in person with him this is before we got very close um but he convinced me by saying you have to remove all the doubt all the fear and all the limitation from your mind completely because your mind controls your body. And like I, it, the, to do that feat, you have to have full commitment and a lot of speed. And I could feel myself slowing down. I'm like, okay, what you're saying makes sense. And I had, um, some, by that point, some background and some meditation, breathing exercises, martial arts, that kind of stuff. So I went and sat down and just did some deep breathing and got really relaxed and started picturing myself driving the nail through the board and popping a balloon with it. I put a balloon on the other side of the board to pop. Um, and by doing that, I was able to incorporate more of my senses because I could hear that pop and that okay. pop meant that, that I had done the feat, right? Right. I did that for maybe 10 minutes or so. Went back over, um, nice and relaxed, feeling good. I'm like, I want to give this, give this thing a shot again because we were, we were in the midst of a workshop, right? And um, so I went over to where the board and everything was, set it up and slammed the nail so far through the board that I hit my knuckles. Whereas 15 minutes earlier, I couldn't penetrate all the way through the board. Right. So what changed, right? What changed? The only thing that changed was what was internal for me, my thought process, my understanding of who I was and what I was doing and how much of myself I was allowing to open up and how much of myself I was allowing to get in the way. That was the only difference. You know, you can't explain that with anything else. Like I tried to do it one day and six weeks practice later, I was able to get it. This was instantaneous. Yeah. So I thought, well, if that applies to this, what else does it apply to? And so the short version of the story is I started applying it to things outside of the gym, outside of training. Um, I used it to become a better speaker. Um, I used it to improve like business aspects of the gym that I owned at the time. So um, just mental rehearsal like that, I started really researching into that, how it works, what to do with it. And that took me down the the path of guys like Napoleon Hill and um, Maxwell Maltz, these like classic personal development types. And I found out okay. too that, that a lot of the best uh, or a lot of the, my favorite stuff on that subject was written around the same time, late 1800s, early 1900s as some of the best strength training literature. And so there was this big interlap or, or uh, overlap interweaving of all that stuff. And um, I wound up, this is, this is what I want to do. This is 
mission is to use these feats of strength to show people how I got my mind together and how they can get theirs together too. I love how you and call I it. To, I forgot to tell you that when you ask me a question, I tend to keep going. So no, if that's, I ramble that's on, great. Just, tell me, just tell me to shut up. <laughs> no, that's, that's awesome because I, I have a sandwich here and a couple of bottles of Coke and I'm all good to go. No, but seriously, I love how you call them feats of strength and you make sure not to ever call them tricks. Like you're not trying to trick anybody. You're just showing this is what I can do with my mind. I mean, I'm so hand centric. I don't know that I could ever do the washcloth thing. I think, I think I would put the brakes on so fast. There's no way in the world I would do yeah. that. But when you do those, I mean, there's the thing, and I'm sorry for not getting the, the name of the feet of strength, but you have the thing around your chest that also mm -hmm. you just flex so hard. You just, I mean, metals flying everywhere, man. And I just, and it was almost, you're, you're just talking, you're talking, you're talking, then you just go, pow, and it pops off of there. And it's so instantaneous. There's no, there's no psyching yourself up. There's no getting yourself ready. You already mentally know you can do this. You've done it before and you're going to do it right now. And it's pretty amazing to watch. Well, thank you. Thank you. And the feed that you're talking about, um, I have a very clever name for it. I call it the chain break. Nice. <laughs> I like that. And, and for the people who are having trouble, having trouble picturing what that looks like, I have a custom made belt with a couple of clips on each end of it. And I'll take a piece of either number six or number eight jack chain, which is an open loop chain. And I tighten that belt down as much as I possibly can. And then with chest expansion, not uh, around my chest. And then with, with it, by expanding my chest and flexing, um, I make my chest bigger very, very rapidly and yeah. it stretches the link that the link out and breaks the chain. That's a classic feat of strength from probably the 1870s is probably <laughs> the earliest, um, earliest record I've seen of it. So it's been around a long time. That's insane. I mean, <clears throat> going back to what we were talking about, both of our wives are, photographers so we've had a chance to to speak two or three times and in our conversations a lot of times go uh to metal and to rock and stuff how do you think how did you get interested in heavy music and has it had what effect has it had i mean we were talking about zach a little while ago we were talking about Dimebag and eddie van halen does that have any other effects to what you do as a professional strongman, or is it just, is that how you relax? Like that's how I relax and just listening to that stuff. Oh, it's, it's deeply woven into me. It affects everything that I do. Um, yeah. like I said, my dad was a musician when I was a kid and he did like outlaw country stuff. Right. Okay. Um, during the, during the, the peak of the Willie and Waylon era. And, you know, there was always like Johnny Cash and Elvis and, and old rock and roll records in my, in my house. So huge, huge, like subconscious download of that stuff. When I was a little kid, um, remember going to see him play many, many times when I was a little kid in places that a, you know, seven or eight year old kid probably shouldn't have been, Right, but it was cool, you know? And, um, when I was about 13, um, I heard Def Leppard on the radio and I'm like, Ooh, this is interesting. And, you know, I had already been yeah. listening to a little bit of the, the rock of the day and, and like, um, liked the guitar sound of like, uh, uh, Joan Jett. I love rock and roll, you know, that really, really 
distorted guitar sound there. Yeah, yeah. And um, heard Def Leppard, and and um, it was Photograph was the song. I'm like, this is a really catchy song, but it's also really rock. And I still yeah. feel that way about that um, to this day. Great. Song. And then um, just started kind of paying attention to that kind of music. And a guy that I rode the school bus with handed me a cassette tape of Diver Down. Nice. And um, I took that and listened to it. And it was um, it was the bug was the song that really just punched me in the throat because it was it, 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 it reminded me of like the old country and the blue stuff. It's a blue song, basically, you know. Yeah. And uh, starts with that acoustic uh, uh, porch kind of blues and then just erupts not to be trite in the expression there. Right. Yeah. And I'm like, wow, this is amazing. And so that, that got me listening to, um, uh, Eddie Allen. I, I wanted to know more about who was doing this and how a guitar could make that sound. And right around that same time, Ted Nugent released the penetrator album, which is a terrible album, terrible <laughs> album compared to some of his earlier works. And I mean, Ted Nugent's got a lot of bad albums and he's got, got a few great songs, you know, yeah. Um, like I sometimes wonder if somebody records a, a bad album and sells it, if he gets a royalty cause he's got <laughs> ma- done so many bad albums. But, um, the song from penetrator was called tied up in love. And there was this, um, solo guitar intro that lasted about 10 seconds and Ted just shredding some licks yeah. and then coming in with this really heavy kind of thing. And that came on the radio and really caught my attention. Yeah. And, um, Ted was the first live show that I ever saw. And like for a long time, I wanted to be Ted and I wanted to be Eddie Van Halen. And then, um, then in the early nineties, you know, there was, there was Pantera. Yeah. And so like, um, all of that stuff, uh, and by the time the early nineties rolled around, I was, um, not going to class, but enrolled in college and playing in a rock band and really immersing myself in that. Like my whole reason for going to college was to hope to find a band that I could play with. Right. <laughs> and <laughs> that happened and we gigged and, and um, I, I got everything but rich and famous, you know, it was a great time. So um, what, what did you play? But, uh, then I play lead guitar awesome. at, at that point. And, and yeah, I, I, uh, I, my, my main guitar for years and years and years was, uh, and, and I still have it as a, um, uh, an 88 Les Paul custom oh, came dude. stock with this. It came stock with EMGs like Zach Wilds. Um, All right. And, um, I traded those out for Seymour Duncan, uh, uh, pearly gates. Okay. Uh, pearly gates. Yeah, right. No, no, no pearly gates. Yeah. Cause I love Billy Gibbons, you know? Yeah. I love that, that big fat sound Yeah, and it worked for my guitar. So, um, so yeah, all of this stuff that I learned from being on stage, playing in these, you know, suspect places like, you know, crappy bars or on a flatbed truck out at some bonfire party in college where we had to run a quarter mile of extension cord to power the band (laughs) kind of stuff. You know, you, you learn things doing that, that you can't learn any other way. And, and my dad was always like, I would, I would call him up and tell him whatever this week's uh, horror story was. And he's like, yep. I remember back when we were in, you know, Fargo, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, Oh yeah. Okay. And he would like, you know, he's like, I, c- I could have told you all this stuff if I remembered it, <laughs> you know, so um, <laughs> that, that, that taught me how to engage with people without speaking. And it taught me how yeah, to sure. consider my body to uh, my body as part of the, of, 
you know, I would thrash my head around and do all that jumping up and down silly stuff that, that we all did back then. Um, that hurt that, your neck for two days. How to interact with an audience. Yeah. Do you, th- yeah. do you think some of that pre Hulk nine year old anger had anything to do with why you loved heavy music so much and the, ag- the aggression of the Panteras and the priests and the ACDC and stuff. I remember. Yes, absolutely. It did. Um, um, the, I remember the first time that I heard primal concrete sledge. Oh dude. And I remember turning around and looking at the guy that, that introducing me to it on his cassette deck thing there. I remember turning around and looking at him and saying, this is a musical Hulk out. Cause that's what it was. I mean, like, <laughs> yes, it was. <laughs> yeah. Primal concrete slash. And then domination, the end of domination. Oh, I'm like, that's Godzilla, you know, that. Yeah. Da, 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 da. yeah. 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 That's one of the most awesome riffs, especially when they turn around from one and three to two and four. It's just, oh. yes. So, yeah. Do you want to hear, do you want to hear the, my crazy dime bag story? You tell me yours. I'll tell you mine. <laughs> I had, uh, when I was working at Sony, whoops, sorry, my phone's still on. When I was at Sony, uh, Washburn put out life-size dime bag cutouts, cardboard cutouts. And he, he was standing there in his shorts and his sleeveless Washburn shirt. And he was looking down at his guitar and he had his hands out And I bought one of those for me and I bought one for our assistant, our promotion assistant, Tommy. And I gave it to him and I took it home and it was in my basement forever. And, um, at when the floods came, the carpet and everything got, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Let me start first. When Dimebag got shot. No, no, it was right. I'm sorry. When the floods came, the carpets got so wet, the bottom of the the cutout got so wet, it leaned in and it hit a a bookcase and it snapped the neck off at about the fifth fret. And so I just took a ruler that I had and I duct taped it to the ruler and the neck so it would be cool. Well, then Dimebag got shot. (laughs) Yeah. And I don't know if you ever saw any of those horrendous on stage pictures, but he got shot in the face. And the weirdest thing was, man, he fell forward, which probably is not your standard way to fall when you get that kind of, and I know this is gross, man, but you get shot in the face. I would think he would fall backwards. He fell forward. That's what the movies would lead us to believe. Yeah. Yes. I don't really know myself. Yeah. I don't know either. Thankfully. And I hope I never do. But he, he fell forward in his guitar, the neck hit one of the monitors and it snapped the neck off at about the fifth fret. And I got so creeped out about that. I had a session at uh, the sound kitchen and I took, I walked in one day and I had my dime bag stand up, I stand up under my arm with the ruler taped to the, to the neck. And I said, can I just leave this here? Can I put this in the back room? And they go, yeah, you can do whatever you want to do. So I took it back there and I'm sure it's not there today, but I was just so completely freaked out that it had in real life, you know, that it had also happened in my basement. So that's my weird dime bag story. What's yours? Yeah, that is, 
That is bizarre. And but I got to tell you, though, using a ruler to duct tape the neck back on is such a dime bag idea. That's so awesome. I mean, I, so, I, I could literally see him doing that, you know? Yeah. Cause it's just yeah. dumb and it's what I had at hand, you know, it's, well, it's right yeah. here. I'll just use it. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I've got, uh, I, I was of the, um, the good fortune to meet dime twice. Um, yeah. I didn't know him. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna pretend like, you know, I was anybody except some raving fanboy. Um, the first time was in, uh, 92, January of 92, they were at a little club in Nashville that we used to play all the time called club 1000. It doesn't oh, yeah. exist anymore. Yeah. It doesn't exist anymore. It, it used to be down like where the, uh, the bicentennial mall is now, I think oh, but, um, yeah. the guy that, the guy that ran that place, his name was Tommy and he would call us up on a Thursday. Hey man, y'all want to come out and bust a show? Yeah. We getting paid. Hell no, you ain't getting paid. You know, he was that guy, right? <laughs> He'd have somebody cancel and he would call us to, to drive up from Murfreesboro. Um, I got to meet another, uh, a, a guy named Warner Hodges. Played oh yeah. For Jason man. and Scorchers. Jason and Scorchers. And yeah, hang out absolutely. with him one night. And Warner and I had one of those nights. I'm sure he wouldn't remember now, but we connected musically that night. It was amazing. Anyway, um, went to club 1000, saw Pantera yeah. and there were maybe 70 people there. No yeah. one knew who they were yet because they were still, they were, they were the big regional band from Texas Yeah, and they, they were, had been touring behind Cowboys and they had gone to Russia at this point for that big festival that they, that they oh, shot yeah. with, uh, with Metallica and ACDC and yeah. Black Crows. Well, they had done that gig, but, um, uh, or, or at least I think they have. Um, I remember Phil talking about it, so um, it must, must have, have happened. happened. <laughs> <laughs> must have happened, yeah. And so um, they got done. They went backstage and changed and whatever. And Phil came out and goes to the bar. And most of the people that were there left. And there was maybe 15 or 20 of us that were still there after it was over with. And we all started, you know, just hanging out at the bar. And Phil was basically holding court and talking about stuff. And then Dime comes out, and he's standing over there, you know, being Dime. And so I w went over, um, walked up to him. And the 10 or 12 people that were standing around um, just to kind of, you know, be the observer of the conversation. And they slide around this um, tray full of crown shots and Dime starts handing them out to everybody. And we all like the big football huddle, put them in the middle and, and Dime says, get you pulled. And we all do the shot. Right. And so, like, I did a shot with Dime bag and I'm like that was the pinnacle for me at that point. Yep. Um, about a year later, they came back through town and they had been on Beavis and Butthead by this point, And they were metal gods at this point. And it was right on the verge of, um, of them not doing club shows anymore. Um, they, they had um, released vulgar display of power about a month after I saw them that first time and did the shots. And so they took off from that, you know, and remember when they were on Beavis and butthead and, and they were like, uh, um, Hey Pantera, why do you look so mad all the time? Yeah. You respect your stepmother. <laughs> <laughs> Love that stuff. So, <laughs> so they were at tower records doing an in-store. I was there and, yeah. Oh, cool. Well, we may have been standing in line next to each other. I don't even know. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but my buddy had this ratty ass old poster that had been hanging in his dorm room and probably his bedroom before that. And mm. um, he took it down and rolled it up, took it to the store. 
and um we we walk up and it's our turn and you know you've you've seen these things done many many times the a lot of times the the artist is they're on autopilot they sign something they shake a hand we didn't take pictures then because you know we nobody yeah. had a camera didn't have didn't yeah sign, just sign and move on to the next and move on to the next one and um um this this actually goes back to um um you asking about the influence of of mm. that kind of music and that, yeah. that whole uh, culture on me as a strong man. Um, so we go up and, and the, my buddy slides the poster in front and dimes like, Oh, I hadn't seen one of these for a while. So he's scribbling on it. And we babbled some, some, some kind stuff to him. You know, we totally fanboyed out on him. Yeah. And, um, and, and I said, I, I know I said something, you know, here, the stuttering kid showed up again, you know, and I'm like, <laughs> Felt like that bit on that Chris Farley used to do. Hey, you're Dimebag Daryl. That's awesome. You know. You remember and, when um, you were in Pantera? Uh, yeah, that was so cool. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I said something very complimentary to him. I don't even know what it was. And he stops and looks up, and he looks me in the eye, and he looks my buddy in his eye. I can still see his head going back and forth, looking each one of us in the eyes, mm. saying this. He's like, "Man, I really appreciate you saying that, but I'm just a fucking fan like y'all. I happen to be up here doing it." Yeah. And I'm like, yeah. well, that, that, that hit me so hard, you know? And, and like now when I go and, and speak and perform as a strong man, I'm like, I'm a fan of this stuff first. Yeah. And I can convey that same kind of authenticity, but me instead of dime, then, then I'm tuning into that wavelength. Right. And well, what, so, what, what does, what does, a uh, what does one of your uh, per- presentations consist of? I mean, you walk out in a kilt <laughs> yep. with a smiling face and a twinkle in your eye. I mean, Indeed what, I do. What, I know you go all over the world. What are you actually, what are you talking about when you're doing this? Um, it, it's loosely dependent on what the event is. Okay. Um, I do a couple different things. Like if I do something like a county fair or something like that, um, I did Williamson County fair a couple years ago. Um, it's that's more of a just go do feats of strength and, and be entertaining kind of thing. Okay. But if I do like a school assembly or a college show or especially corporate stuff, because corporate is where I've done more than of of these things than anywhere else. Yeah. Um, and I and, and that's by design because the 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 payoff is bigger, you know, right. uh, all the way around. The people who come to, the, to those corporate things are far more interested than the vast majority of high school students are. Um, but anyway, um, I will talk to the meeting planner and find out what like the theme is and everything. And I'll, I'll work that into what I'm doing. But essentially what I do is I come out, I start telling my story about being the stuttering kid who saw Lou Ferrigno. I talk about meeting my mentor, Dennis Rogers, and I talk about the lineage. Um, Dennis's mentor, Slim the Hammerman, who's in his 80s and um I've met him many times and have trained with him many times. And then his mentor was an old time strong man who died in 1977 called the mighty Adam. And so I've got this direct link back to the vaudeville era through that. And so I talk about the feats. I talk and, and I invite people up to participate in some of it. And then after I don't know, 15 or 20 minutes of that, I transition into talking about the mindset that goes along with deciding that I'm going to do something that most people would say is impossible. Right. And, and 
how does that play into your life? And I talk about um, mm. how we use our imagination to uh, reprogram our self-image and um, the the chain break bit that you were talking about earlier where I'm, yeah. I'm talking, there's there's a, a fairly lengthy talk that leads into that with the, the snapping of the chain being the punctuation at the end of it. Um, I used a nail drive feat that I talked about earlier to talk about the um, importance of fully committing to a decision that once you've de- the, 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 the true meaning of decision, if we look mm. at the roots of the words again, comes from two words, day, which is from and kaidare, which means to cut. So to fully commit to a decision means that you are so committed to it, you've cut yourself off from any other possibility, any other outcome. And that's how that nail drive has to be. So I use these feats of strength to do this motivational speaking for lack of a better term, yeah. to get people um, to understand that it, it, and I especially love it with corporate audiences because, you know, okay, you just turned 40. It's not too late for you to do, to do the thing you want to do. Don't give up on your daydream. Yeah. You know? um, so essentially that's, that's what it's like. I think one of the other things that amazed me is when you do the, <clears throat> excuse me, the, hammer, I mean, the, the nail in a washcloth through the board into the balloon, somebody from the crowd is putting that board on their lap and they're putting the balloon between their knees. And mm-hmm. whether they know it or not, they're learning so much about trust. They don't even get Absolutely. it until I'm sure they go home and they go, holy crap, I let that guy who I've never seen before. I've never, or I've never met before slam a four inch nail that close to my, you know, my privates leg, my leg <laughs> leg. Yeah. We'll call it leg. Yes. This is the leg. <laughs> so do you ever get a scoffer in the crowd that, you know, that doesn't believe or doesn't think he's getting anything out of that night. And then you teach him to snap a board and you just, or whatever, and you watch the light come on in their eyes, and all of a sudden you can just look at them and you go, you got it. You've got it from now on. Um, unlike social media, the scoffers and the disbelievers at a live show never come up and say anything. You know? Oh, okay. On, on social media, I'll, you know, like on TikTok or something, I'll post a video of me doing something and, you know, ass clown 69 comes in and starts <laughs> talking about how it's, it's just a trick of physics or whatever. And I'm like, guy. yeah, he's awesome. <laughs> um, but, but live, yeah. uh, very few people ever come up and say anything rude. I have had people come up and say, Hey, can I give that a shot? I think I could do it, but I didn't want to get called up on stage. Okay. And, you know, I'll, I'll talk to him about it and stuff like that, because like you said earlier, everything that I do is, is a real feat of strength. I'm not trying to trick yeah. anybody. Um, which is why when I was describing the chain break earlier, I made it a point to say it's an open link chain. No one can break a welded chain. It, right. It's that's just right. not something that, that, it, that people do. Um, the majority of the people that come up usually have kind things to say. Yeah. Um, or they want to tell me about their cousins, uncles, brothers, boyfriends, sisters, moms, cousin-in-law who could bench press 8,000 pounds or, you know, used to bend railroad spikes with his bare hand. I literally had someone tell me that, that, that they watched a man bend a railroad spike barehanded behind his back. Uh-huh. I'm like, no, you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> that, that didn't happen. 
because I'm a student of this stuff <laughs> right. back through the decades. And there is no legitimate recorded person having ever bent a half inch or five eighths inch thick, six inch long railroad spike, especially with no padding. It's just, yeah. no, you didn't see that. Someone tricked and you. Or behind their back. You, yeah, behind the back, which is, right. that's a whole different story there, you know. Um, so usually people come up and, and if they're going to, take the time to come talk to me it's because something has happened in the show that's affected them like i did a show like the last show i did last month um i was in where was i i was in denver doing this corporate thing there may be 400 people there after it was over with uh this guy comes up to me and earlier in the the segment about um self-image and your mind and and the important things to put your mind on i i found myself almost like um when I was playing music and we would go off on an improv thing, you know, we'd be like, okay, we're just going to play here. And, and I would go improv a solo, you know, some nights, uh, everybody who plays guitar can, can identify with this. Some nights you, you're all over the place and, and everything is terrible. And it just, you kind of scrape by. And then some nights the magic clicks and you like, works. My, everything works. And you like go back yeah. and watch a recording and you or listen to a recording. You like, how the hell did I do that? Right. Um, well, I had a moment like that speaking when I was on the subject of guilt and resentment and forgiveness. And um, I haven't gotten the video of the of the event yet. I'm hoping they send it to me soon because I want to go back and, and remember what I said so that I can do it deliberately next time. Um, but I did this whole thing that probably lasted two or three minutes on resentment and guilt and forgiveness. And this guy mm-hmm. comes up to me afterward and he says to me, that he just found out two weeks ago that his wife was, had cheated on him. She had gone out, she had gotten drunk, she had made bad decisions. She immediately, after it was over with, came to him and confessed and threw herself on his mercy and just felt horrible and guilty and all that kind of stuff about it. I mean, she messed up and and he's like, but I just, it's been on me. I, I can't let it go. I can't stop thinking about it. And so I'm yeah. looking at divorce and I've got two kids and all of the stuff that goes along with that. And he says, but in the middle of you talking about that, I felt the weight of the resentment lift off me and I'm ready to go talk to her about this. And I said, well, that's awesome, man. He's like, no, you don't understand. You probably saved my marriage and my family. Yeah. And I'm like, I didn't do that. I didn't do that. Yeah. I was talking and you just heard what you needed to hear out of it. But, but I'm very grateful that I happened to be the one who was talking when you got what you needed. You know, yeah. I don't want it to sound like that. I'm, you know, that I'm that guy or anything, but right. I said it and it meant that to him. So yeah. um, when someone comes up and says something like that, you know, I'm like, that's why I do this. That is why I do this kind of Absolutely. stuff. Is there, I mean, you've been all over the country. Is there, is it, is it, and I don't mean this to sound stupid. Is it harder to do a show in Japan or China or Germany than it is to do a show in Nebraska just because of the, of the language barrier? Do you have to have a translator or does it, does it really translate because of physically of what you're doing? Um, Fortunately, every, event that I've done in a country that doesn't speak English 
has been a largely English speaking audience. Okay. So I haven't really had to think about that or had a, had a translator come in or anything like that. But um, the those shows are harder for me just because of the travel, you know, yeah. and being jet lagged and, and all of that kind of stuff. So it, it I actually, um, the last few times I've done an international thing, I will start several days in advance kind of right. adjusting my sleep and wake time so that it doesn't impact me so much. And then what I try to do is get on the plane, um, tell the, the, uh, flight attendant, just keep bringing me the little bottles of red wine and, um, take a couple of Zequils and try to sleep for three or four. Cause I'm a big yeah. guy. I have difficulty sleeping in a, in a plane seat, you know, but, um, yep. um, other than that, it's, it's, you know, I, I do what I can to connect with people on a very visceral level through the feet so that by the time they're ready to start paying attention to what I'm saying, I don't have to, to get through much of that anymore. Yeah. You know? So, um, have you fought a which, bunch of injuries doing what you're doing? Uh, the only really noteworthy injuries that I've had as a result of doing feats of strength was a few years ago, and this wasn't even on stage. So that's good too. Um, a few years ago, I, I still owned the gym downtown in Nashville. We still lived in Nashville and I had gone to this event that used to happen every year called the association of old time barbell and strongman banquet dinner. Okay. Um, they stopped doing that a couple of years ago, right before COVID, which is probably just as well because most of the guys that were going to that were in their seventies and eighties anyway, wow. but it was a chance to go hang out with these old timers and every year they would honor somebody and, and all that kind of stuff. I had just been to that event and got back home and I had, been around Dennis, my mentor. I'd been around Slim the Hammerman, a bunch of other really strong guys that the people listening won't know who they are, but but they're like basically legends in the the um, strongman world. Yeah, and I had I I cycle through the feats that I focus on periodically. And I had cycled away from bending longer pieces of steel. And what I mean by that is anything three feet, four feet, maybe on up to five feet. And there's some really interesting stuff that you can do with a longer piece like that, because you can make coils and loops and, oh, and right. um, yeah, I call it, I call it metal balloon animals, you know, um, <laughs> that yeah. kind of stuff. And I, and I, I came back from AOBS and I'd seen some some guys doing some long bending. And I'm like, I haven't done that for a while. Went and pulled out a bunch of steel that I had sitting over in the corner. And here's a pro tip for anybody who wants to be a steel bending strong man. There's a huge difference between hot rolled steel and cold rolled steel, especially yeah. when it gets, when it gets up to longer lengths. The difference being that cold rolled steel is very springy and very brittle. Um, hot rolled steel, you bend it and it'll stay where you put it. Cold rolled steel, you can bend it a long way and it might snap, snap or uh, it yeah. might spring back the other way. Right. And so I grabbed a piece of steel out of this um, bundle that was labeled hot rolled and went to coil it up and it didn't feel exactly right. I mean, it was a fairly easy piece for me. I wasn't going to jump back in and, and, you know, be the guy who's, hasn't done it for six months and try to pick up where I left off. I, I right. know better than to do that. So I'm bending this fairly easy piece and I looped it around and I had it in this position where if you can imagine you've got your left hand on your hip, palm up your right hand, like right at your, at your armpit, palm down okay. and, and like you would break something there. Right. So I'm, I'm doing this thing to, to bring those ends closer to each other. And 
um, it slipped out of my right hand and hit me in the face. Oh. Sprang back. It was a mislabeled piece. I thought it was hot rolled. It was actually cold rolled. And so that spring effect, when it slipped out of my hand, hit me in the forehead. And it knocked me senseless. It didn't knock me out, but it knocked me senseless. And so like one second I'm sitting here exerting effort, bending this piece of steel. And I noticed that it felt weird, but I thought, well, maybe that's just because I'm out of practice. You know, I didn't, I didn't pay attention to that part. So there's the lesson learned in this, but it hits me in the face. And I suddenly realized that I'm on, um, on my knees with my left palm on the ground and I'm on my right elbow. So I'm not all the way knocked out, but I'm, right. I'm two knees, one elbow and one palm. And I'm looking around and I'm like, OK, I'm not laying down. That means I'm not knocked out, which also means I'm not dead. That's good. I mean, this is literally what I'm thinking <laughs> yeah, as, exactly. I'm, as my, I'm recovering my consciousness. So I push up into like a crawling position and I look and I'm moving my head side to side. And I'm opening and closing both eyes and very, you know, whatever combination one at a time, my eyes. And I'm like, I can see out both of my eyes. That means that I didn't blind myself. That's also good. And I remember thinking at that point, this is shaping up to be a pretty good day. (laughs) And then I felt a little owie on my forehead and I reached up and I put my hand on it and I brought my hand back down. And then I saw the blood starting to collect in the floor. And I'm like, that is decidedly not good. That is bad, in fact. And so I, I run to the bathroom with my hand over my head. And I get to the mirror and I pull back and I've got a gash that's maybe two and a half inches. And it wound up uh, like and and I'm looking at myself. Blood's coming down my face. And I I, this this will those who know if you know, you know, I looked like Shawn Michaels at the Undertaker Hell in a Cell match. Yes. Yes. Okay. So everybody that knows knows, <laughs> yes. and everybody that doesn't know, go look that up on go look it up. My face. And so I um, I called my wife, and she answered the phone. Hey, babe. And she said I sounded like Liam Neeson. Listen very carefully to me. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm okay, but I need you to come get me. Well, where are you? And I said, and I said I'm okay at the gym piece of steel hit me in the face. I'm okay, but I can't get the bleeding to stop. And I need you to take me to the emergency room. So she comes, takes me and I got 14 stitches in my head. Oh, in the emergency room. And, um, then I went and did a gig that weekend. Nice. And so, <laughs> so I walk out on <laughs> stitches and, and a swollen head and a black eye kind of looking like, uh, what's his name from the Goonies? Like, Hey, you guys, you know, oh, yeah. I did the gig. It was fine. But, um, once in a while, the, the steel wins. Yes, yes. Um, and I threw that piece of steel in the dumpster that night. Um, I, it, it doesn't belong here, you know. So um, that's, that's like the only significant injury that I've ever gotten, though, because that's I've amazing, been very uh, meticulous about the training. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I know that, I know that, that um, whatever feat that I'm doing, particularly if there's a piece of metal involved or a heavy weight hovering over my head in some way yeah, or something sharp and pointy that, um, that deserves respect. You know, uh, right. I would, I, on a similar note, I would go see Pantera in the nineties and I wear earplugs and care, you know, right. <laughs> where I'm going to be, I'm going to be down front. I need these. You know? And and you may have a cocktail before you go to the show. I don't. Maybe I don't. Or three. You know. <laughs> do you want to yeah. do my thinking and drinking lightning round? 
I do want to do your thinking and drinking lightning <laughs> round. Um, but before I do that, before I do that, uh, it, this being October and recently past their anniversary of Ed Halen's death, I have to think and being the heavy, the heavy metal stuff that we're talking about. Um, I have to, to mention that another thing that has resonated with me and stuck with me ever since it, the horrible tragic murder barrel is the entire story of dime meeting Eddie Van Halen right at the same time that they were about to do the, um, the reproductions of his iconic guitars and Ed offering to give one to dime and him wanting the bumblebee because that was, you know, that was his favorite one. And then, um, I'm sure everybody's familiar with the story, but, uh, at the funeral, Ed shows up with the original Bumblebee guitar from the Van Halen two album cover and puts it in the casket with dime bag because dime was an original and he deserved to have the original. And, you know, you hear stories about these guys that are great. You hear stories about these guys where they're having bad days and it's easy to forget that rockstar guys are human and they have ups and downs uh, and they probably swing wider than most of the people you know because genius has its price and often that price shows up in substance abuse so i've heard some really terrible things about ed and i've heard this story about ed and this story about ed is the one that i choose to remember the most about eddie van halen because take away the influence that he had on an entire a multitude of guitar players take away the influence that he had on the equipment and recording aspect of music and just look at him as a person recognizing the genius that was Dimebag deserving to have that original guitar. And that is my, one of the, the, the many reasons that I love Eddie Van Halen. Yep. Everybody says he was one of the kindest, most generous guys in the world, unless he would just been on a four day bender or whatever, you know, but, but sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. And cocaine's a hell of a drug. So, <laughs> well, you know what? <laughs> I, I never like cocaine. I just kind of like the smell of it. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. All right, here we go. Lightning We're, round. This is a question and you just blast out of the answer right out to me. What's your favorite book? Power of Imagination by Neville Goddard. Nice. You a bath or a shower guy? Shower. What's the last Unless there's gift? ice involved, then it's an ice bath. Right, right. What's the last gift you gave someone? Mm. I gave a a lot of things to my son over the weekend because it was his birthday last weekend. So I'm gonna right. say like toy tractors. Nice, nice. Do you believe in Bigfoot? Absolutely. All right. What's the first concert you saw? How old were you? And did you get a t-shirt? It was Ted Nugent on the Penetrator tour. I was 14 years old, the Municipal Auditorium, uh, downtown Nashville. And I bought the t-shirt and wore it throughout my entire high school career. It was sleeveless. It had the dragon from the Boris Vallejo painting that was the Penetrator album cover on the front and the back. Sleeveless white t-shirt, as was par for the course for the day. Wore it my entire high school career and eventually um, kept it in a plastic bag for a while. And it kind of just turned into this rotted ball of thread. And I threw it away probably maybe 15 years ago. But you probably got, but you got your money's worth out of it. Oh, absolutely. And that was, that was April 20th, 1984. Holy crap. 
Okay. What was, uh, what was, or maybe is your nickname growing up? Um, Iron Tamer. Nice. Of course. Um, what's the favorite song you've ever played on guitar? That I've actually played myself. Favorite yeah. song. Yeah. Ooh, wow. Um, first thing off the top of my head is unchained Nice. because I've been playing that one a lot lately. Um, oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. I just, it, my son loves it. He'll get up on the couch and he'll go unchained and jump up in there and <laughs> land and say, hit the ground running. That's uh, so, that's, um, that's the first song I ever learned in a drop D tuning. So I, I like very that. Cool. Very cool. If you were cremated, where would you want your ashes to be spread? Somewhere in the woods. Yeah. Here or in know. Scotland or Ireland or someplace or around here? Probably here in the States somewhere. I'd say, yeah, here in the States. What would you be doing if you weren't doing this? Right now, taking a nap. <laughs> I mean, like for a living. <laughs> Um, I don't know. I can't really imagine not doing this. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so just almost off the subject, but what's next? What do you got going on? Did slow, I, I assume COVID slowed you down amazingly, huh? COVID canceled, COVID canceled my whole year last year. Um, yeah. um, I've done two shows this year. One was a reschedule from April of last year to August of this year and the other one uh, just came up this year but um, I had already had designs on starting a uh, an online coaching program based mm -hmm. on the the using the mental approach of strongman training to help people with goal achievement and self-confidence and just personal development stuff yeah. so when when the year got canceled last year I threw myself into that and uh, that's the main thing that I do now which the cool thing about that is um with my son being three um i don't have to get on airplanes yeah. like i did you know the the couple of shows that i've done this year were just heart-wrenching to me to drive to the airport once i got to the airport and got on the plane i was cool but like leaving the house and going to do that yeah. is uh painful to me but um yeah i'm fortunate that my wife and i both are self-employed and so we can be home with them we don't have to put them in daycare or anything like that and so i'm around them all that time um but yeah, the online coaching stuff, if anyone's interested, if I may plug it yes. I'm here on the show, um, to go to superhumanucoaching.com, um, you can, there's a presentation on there that talks a lot about, uh, the background on it and what it is and, and how we do things. And if you watch that presentation and decide that you're interested in talking to me, you can book a call to talk to me and I can figure out if we're a fit for some one-on-one -on -one coaching and cool. if we are great. And if not, then then that's fine too. But that's superhumanucoaching.com. Uh, if you just want to read the book that I wrote that kind of details some of this stuff, it's at superhumanubook.com. And I give that book away for free. I just ask that anybody that goes there pay for shipping and handling, which comes out to be like 10 bucks. So um, superhumanubook.com or superhumanucoaching.com uh, will get you into my, on my email list and, and, you can find out more about what the, the coaching aspect of it is all about. And there's also some pretty interesting, uh, um, post coaching interviews that I've done with people where they talk about the results that they got. And so, you, oh, that's cool. Oh, yeah. You can go in there and find out that it's not just, you know, it's one thing for me to sit here and tell you how awesome I am. But if I say, Hey, 
what was your experience like? And you had a good experience. Yeah. People are going to, going to listen to that far yeah. more than, than just me saying I'm Austin. And you also have irontamer.com. Yeah. Irontamer.com is the website that is, um, its purpose has to do with me speaking and performing. So you won't find anything there currently about the coaching aspects of things. That's just, right. there's videos of me performing and speaking, um, more information about how to involve that and full transparency here that exists that way, because I just haven't made it, uh, made the effort to update it, to include any of the coaching stuff and link those things together. That website hasn't been the irontamer.com website hasn't been messed with for a couple of years. So, um, yeah, there's plenty of stuff there, but, um, what are, other, what are your other what are your other socials? My other socials, uh TikTok and Twitter and Instagram are all Iron Tamer. Um, and then Facebook is Dave Whitley Iron Tamer. Cool. And YouTube, I think, is also Iron Tamer or Iron Tamer Dave Whitley, something like that. So pretty much if you go on social media and put an Iron Tamer in, you'll find me. Awesome, man. Well, I'm going to say goodbye, but if you can stick around for two seconds, I want to actually say goodbye to you. Absolutely, brother. So awesome, man. Thank you, Dave Whitley. I'll talk to you soon. <laughs>